Welcome to Ageless by Rescue. This podcast is devoted to exploring the science of rejuvenation, uncovering the most trusted experts, the must-have products, innovations, and technology in the field of vitality, aesthetics, new beauty, and cosmetic enhancement. Justine Cullen is an award-winning editor and author with almost 30 years' experience in publishing. Having worked with and led the talented teams of some of the biggest mastheads in beauty and fashion, including Murray Claire, Elle, and now as the newly appointed editor of InStyle magazine, Justine has most likely influenced your view of beauty and style. She is that influential. Starting her career as a beauty editor on titles such as BBC Clothes Show in the UK and Marie Claire Australia, Justine is one of the OG experts and tastemakers of the fashion and beauty industry. Her book, Semi-Gloss, is a series of autobiographical essays on life in the publishing world, marriage, raising four sons, and the behind-the-scenes look at the business of glamour. I have known and loved Justine since we were in our early 20s when she was the formidable beauty director at Marie Claire magazine. And this episode was a wonderful walk through memory lane and a candid conversation about society's evolving views and conversations about beauty and style at every age. Well, I am so excited when I get to have a friend and a colleague and a modern muse that's close to my heart on the show. Justine Cullen and I go way back. I think we were in the beauty industry together. We've been together for at least 20 years, I want to say. Welcome to Ageless by Rescue. I'm so happy to have you. Oh, thank you for having me here. This is fun. I'm already having a good time. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about your background in beauty, because honestly, if there's if you don't know it, it's not worth knowing. There's a few of the, you know, the goddesses of um, the beauty industry, and you're certainly one of them. Um, tell me about your career background and and more so, what did you feel really inspired you to look after yourself? And what did you think was just total hocus pocus? <laughs> well, I mean, I um, I was a beauty editor for a very long time, so I sort of got into magazines knowing I wanted to be in magazines but not really knowing what any of the jobs really were. And then I got into mags and I was like, saw the beauty editor, saw the lovely life that she got to lead and, the, you know, the events she was going to and the lovely packages that came in and how everyone wanted to be her best friend because she ran the beauty cupboard And I thought that's for me. And it also, you know, back then being a beauty editor was very much like the path um, to becoming an editor, an editor-in-chief. So um, for me that it was a really obvious kind of a choice. And then I ended up being in beauty for about 14 years, um, which is a very long time. Um, And I guess. Gosh, it's a great industry. It's science, it's, it's beauty, it's travel, it's people, it's storytelling. I loved my beauty industry experience. It's like truly the great joy of my life and I'm really proud of it. Yeah, and look, and I think people underestimate, people are thinking, oh, you know, they just play with lip gloss all day. But actually, you know, you are the person on a magazine, you, you know, you're the person who's at the real coalface of, of advertisers and that you know, that advertising money coming in. Um, and it's a, a lesson in, in client negotiations and client management and, you know, representing the magazine. You're a marketer, you're a writer, you're a stylist, you kind of get a little bit of everything. So it's a really a highly valued role. For me, and I, I talk about this in my book, I 
feel like I was a really bad beauty editor. Like I, um, <laughs> but you were I, known as the best beauty editor. So I like <laughs> that, you know, I like that the, the self-concept and the reality are obviously divergent. That's lovely to hear. But, you know, I, I mean, I loved, I loved writing about it. I loved it as an industry and, and, and the science of it, as you were saying, and I found it so interesting, but in terms of what I took into my own life, I was very much a sort of a case of, you know, do as I say, not as I do. And I was always, and you would know this about me, I was never the girl who washed my face at the end of the day. Like I never bothered. Did you even go home at the end of the day? I don't remember just anything. (laughs) Not back then, no. Um, But so, yes, it was, I I was kind of like maybe the, the worst behaved beauty editor on the circuit in terms of uh, you know, I would use any product. I never saw a product to the end, which is hard to do when you're a beauty editor anyway because your job is to try everything. But I sort of never really, um, I never took it seriously enough. I took it seriously when I wrote it, but not for my own person. And it was only years later, you know, probably the beginning of the pandemic for me where I took all that knowledge that I had and, that you know, you absorb biosmosis just from being in the industry and really started to apply it. And, God, I wish that I would started earlier. <laughs> I feel like now I'm taking care of my skin the way I should have taken care of my skin when I was in my 20s and 30s. But Do you, you know. think that because we were in the beauty industry and there's obviously such a lot of focus on rejuvenation, revitalization, you know, the fountain of youth, we, we were peddling it and, um, and also constantly absorbing it. It creates a certain anxiety in the people of the industry in, you know, walking their talk and living up to uh, the expectations of your readers or your followers now, as you would have. Was there ever a time in your life where you thought, oh God, like this is such a lot of constant reminder that you're never pretty enough. You're never the most beautiful. You're never the the youngest. Mm. Did you ever have that anxiety? And you started young. I did start young. I was sort of, I think, one of those people where I was always the youngest in the room. I was the ingenue. And then all of a sudden it happens so quickly. You turn around and you're like, oh, my God, I'm an elder statesman. Like how did that happen? And I think for me, you know, that pressure didn't really, I didn't really absorb a lot of that pressure until maybe, um, I I think around 35. And the only reason that it started to dawn on me was because I was getting all these press releases and, you know, people would be pitching products, new products to us. And they would say, it's for an older customer, you know, 30 plus. And I'd be thinking, Ah. industry, that's as until very recently, that's as old as we go. That's as old as we talk to. So maybe the brands were selling products for an older woman, or their, their customer might have been an older woman, but they didn't market them that way. You know, 30, 35 plus maybe was as old as it went. And that also, you know, that held true for magazines. We would have in our portfolio of magazines at ACP Bauer, where I used to work. And you'd have, you know, I worked for L and L was for a younger woman. So she was, you know, 23 to 28. But then, you know, Harper's Bazaar was for our older customer, 30 plus. And again, I'm like, 30 is so young. Like that is not even a grown up yet now that I'm much older and I can see that. So, you know, that was the kind of time where I thought, wow, we're really perpetuating something here that is so out of touch with reality. And I think the industry is catching on. Well, I think that there's been this huge backlash towards diversity. And when I did a survey 
uh, for Ageless, um, funnily enough, which is why I uh, titled the magazine and the podcast Ageless, was that age diversity, more than cultural ethnicity or um, any other diversity, was the most pressing desire for Australian women and readers uh, to be represented in. And the thing that kept on coming back and people would DM me and say, you know, I'm in my mid-40s, but I still feel 20. I'm 55. And, uh, you know, why are they always talking to me about incontinence pads? I actually want to buy, you know, a bikini. I'm, I'm still living a life that's so energized, so revitalized. I don't see myself as that. And I think that that's where the dial has really shifted in the time that, you know, we when we first joined the industry and we were the babies back then mm-hmm. to now. But, you know, as a, a as a media expert, as an editor, as an author, do you think that we have been part of the problem in fetishizing youth and when what do you think of the steps we've taken that have kind of woken up everyone to saying hang on a second like really 40 is the new 20 like really mm, yeah the new 30 or just 40 is 40 but 40 is not what you've always thought it was and yeah I think I think I don't know if we were so much I mean yes we were part of the problem but by not putting up enough fight, I think. Not not so much by actively perpetuating it ourselves, but by probably not even realising that this was a culture that we were a part of, that um, we we could have put more of a a stand to. And and I think that's part of a sort of, you know, that confirmation bias where, you know, even as, you know, in terms of putting people on the cover of magazines, there was always that sense that you had to be young and blonde and skinny and it was only through my tenure at L, I think that we were able to start pushing back on that. And that's purely because of social media and people became much more demanding about what they, you know, saw and what they wanted. Um, and it wasn't reliant so much on, on magazine copy sales, which still did tend to perform according to that confirmation bias. So, you know, I think for me that idea, you know, nothing frustrates me more than when someone says, like, I'm, I'm 45, like, you know, Oh, you look so great for 45. I never would have I know. That. It's such a dick. What 45 looks like. Like, this is what my friends look like. This is what every 45-year-old I know looks like. And and what are you seeing when you think of 45? And and look, I get it. When I was 23, I remember thinking that a 30-year-old was ancient. And I guess that's always going to be the case. But we're smarter than that now. We know that that's not the case. And I I love that that represent, representation is, is happening more. I love that there are people in their 50s, the Gwyneth Paltrow's of the world who, you know, really kind of make you go, this is what it's about. You know, that is that is what a 50-year-old looks like. Um, I think there was that beautiful cover of, of WSJ Mag recently that Lachlan Bailey shot that was Shalom Harlow and Carolyn Murphy and Amber Valletta and they're having so much fun and they're on bikes and they're just, they're not trying they to be young, being muttony. Yeah. They're just who they, that, that's just what women in their late 40s look like so um I think we're we've worked it out or we're getting there and you've had you know uh you've got a large family and you've had your babies at different stages of your career and different stages of your life can you tell me has that kind of changed um you know what part of you has done things better and what part of you do you think you know have having your first time when you were a lot younger was beneficial for Oh, look, 
there is a big difference between having a baby at 27 and having one at 42. <laughs> I can't even tell you. Yeah, I love um, that life experience that you have because there are so many 42-year-olds who want to have a baby and they can have a baby. Um, yeah. So, and also, you know, 27-year-olds. But I, I'd love you because, I mean, I don't know anyone else who's done it in the way that you have. What were kind of some of the markers that you really remember and that you cherish and you kind of think, oh, God, never again from each of the pregnancies and births? Um, well, I mean, you know, having having my children, it wasn't young. It's not young statistically to have a, a your first child at 27, but in I'm my 36 world, and was very young. I never have occurred yeah. to me to have had a baby at 27. Like I just no. wasn't mentally at all ready for it. So well, I probably wasn't either, to be honest. But you know, I was there doing it. And I had I ended up having two under two, under 30. And you know, all of my friends were still, you know, partying every night. And you know, I was living in in Elizabeth Bay, and I would um you know, I'd go and have dinner with them with a baby, just kind of like in a sling and have dinner at Hugo's Pizza. And then they'd all go on to like have a huge night and I'd go home to change nappies or whatever. So, you know, that sort of adjustment was really interesting, but I don't regret having children at that age at all, because I think there's something really lovely about having that energy and being able to keep up and, and just, you know, staying young. I don't feel like an older parent now with my youngest too, but I definitely have less energy. I'm more tired. My older two boys complain all the time that I don't parent the younger ones enough because, you know, I was obviously, I had more energy to be stricter with them. I read to them a lot more. I mean, I still do that, but but not as much. You have more time. I think it was good from a career perspective because I'd sort of, at that point, I'd done enough to have established myself, particularly in beauty, but um, not enough that I was at the point where it was really hard to jump off for a while. So I was able to kind of keep working at a pace that was comfortable and my career could take off after that point. All the success that I had in my career really came after I had children. So, um, And why do you think that? Do you think that you shifted in your confidence, in your ability to handle multiple things? What changed in you? I feel like I felt internally like I then had something to prove. Like we do work in this industry of of permanent youth and and this idea that all your, you know, there are 23-year-old creatives changing the world all the time. And so for me it was like I don't want to be, I'm not ready to be a daggy old mum who's like put out to pasture. Like I don't want to go and be put on a pregnancy magazine or whatever it is that you want me to do. made me much more sort of ambitious and wanting to prove myself. And I did probably feel more confident in my ideas and I think it does open up your world a little bit so you know for me um that was where I felt the most creative and the most capable and also you know like it's just true that parenting is an amazing primer for business success because you are amazing at multitasking you don't want to get in and waste half the day like chatting to your colleagues you want to get in and smash it out and go home like I do really believe like if you want something done well and quickly hire a mother I think so too and I think that um the other thing that you learn is you learn the depths of all of your strengths and weaknesses and your boundaries and you have to really work on your triggers all the time when you're a parent and so that training of like biting your tongue and uh, and prioritizing differently is is a great business skill as well I agree with you I loved your wedding pictures uh on Instagram and I remember looking at you thinking 
she's like Peter Pan. She's like forever young. <laughs> um, it was so cool. It was beautiful. Tell me about the the background to your wedding plan. And then, you know, you were, I think you were pregnant too, right? Yeah, I yeah. was really pregnant. Yeah, really pregnant. <laughs> Um, you were on uh, on a roadie in America. Tell me about it because it, it really, to me, embodies who you are as the person I know, truly ageless. Um, you've really circled back and found, um, you know, the the version of yourself that is, you know, peak Justine. Um, and I, I just love that moment because I, I felt really happy for you. I felt like you were the most you um, actualized when I saw your wedding photos. Absolutely. And that is hands down the best thing about aging. You know, yes, it comes with saggy knees and weird hairs. I just had threads for my saggy Don't expect. <laughs> <laughs> but you do know who you are and what you want and and you're comfortable voicing that. And, and yes, yeah, so for us, we were um, going on a, a road trip around America with our family. We decided that we wanted to elope somewhere along the way. And for me, you know, I'm a real control freak. So you know, I had been married before. It was the big wedding with all the detail and the extravaganza. And for me, this wedding was just like everything that I really wanted. And, and and I knew that it was the right thing to do because I was letting go of so much that I wouldn't normally, you know, I we literally picked the spot that was just super convenient for our mothers getting there and getting home. We found a, a really great chapel and just took the date that was available um, I was pregnant. I wasn't pregnant when I bought the dress. I kept it. It didn't suit me, but I kept it because I thought it would be great if I was pregnant. <laughs> so, and it worked. So I had this great Chloe dress that just hung in my wardrobe in the hope that I would be pregnant. Um, you know, I, I got a blow dry two days before we went to America from Renya and just was careful not to squish it too much. Like I didn't get my hair done on the day. It's all so unlike who I was before. Um, a makeup artist that came recommended from um, someone I had never met before but who was incredible and is still a friend to this day. So, you know, it was all just however it was going to happen but it didn't matter because it was this perfect moment. It was the surrender. And that would That's what you'd learn. Absolutely. And surrender's not something that comes naturally to me at all in any other area of my life but that felt right. Tell me why you wrote your book, Semi Gloss. It's a, it, like... Everyone was eagerly anticipating it, but tell me why you felt the need to write a book and and what you think are the highlights of writing the book and what are your favourite parts of the book? I um I hadn't intended have to write the this cover there. Book. I want to oh, hold it up if you have just, it. Just sitting next to me all the time. Yeah. Just casually right here. Um, yeah, so I hadn't intended to write that particular book. I had intended to write a book of sort of pop culture essays. And, and as you or anyone who knows me knows, that's kind of, you know, my head is always full of kind of what's next and, and politics. Which is what's and made you a formidable editor. Yeah. I, I, I like to combine it all. And I had this idea of writing a book that would sort of look at the times that we were living in and obviously, you know, first person and, and sort of interspersed with my experience. But much less intimate and personal than the book ended up being. Um, but I have said, you know, many times that I um, was pregnant when I was writing the book and I had just started a new job in a whole new industry and I just didn't have the mental capacity for that book and the research that would be required. And so instead um, I found myself getting more and more personal and I was also at this crossroads in my life where 
you know, I'd just gone through some big changes in my in my home life. I had got divorced and remarried. I was having this baby. I'd left a job I'd been in for 25 years. Um, and and it became a sort of cathartic analysis of sort of, you know, I think this is something that happens to women in their 40s, what had been and where I was going. And um, and so it became just sort of slowly more and more memoir-like and the publishers would call it a memoir. And I'd be like, it's not a memoir. So then they started referring to it as my not memoir. And, um, and you know, it, it's as part of that process of it becoming more and more personal, I think I really came to the realisation that for it to mean anything to anyone, for it to have any kind of impact, that I had to put it all on the table and I had to show myself warts and all that if women would relate to it in any way, they had to see the ugly moments and the mistakes and all of those things alongside, you know, where I'd come out the other side of things. And um, and I'm so glad that I did that because the best part about the book has been the aftermath of, of being able to have this direct contact with all of these incredible women who've written to me and told me their own stories or told me they related to something. And, and I have had, you know, like my DMs are full of people's secrets and women's, you know, the things that they can't tell their best friends or their mothers. And it's been a really powerful experience for me to go from thinking, oh God, I don't want to write a personal story. No one wants to read another one of those to, okay, there's, there's a real point to this. This is like, you can help someone or you can um, allow someone to, to feel seen through another person's story. And yes, that's been the incredible part of it. One of the things I really love about you is um, you always share the journey and the success of your best friends, and you run in a pretty successful crowd. Can you tell me about your relationships with women and the women that really inspire you? And what kind of conversations do you have about, you know, personal development? What kind of conversations do you have around beauty? What kind of conversations do you have around relationships and, you know, who you want to grow into? I, yeah, I love my girlfriends deeply. Um, I wasn't someone who, like, I'm not friends with anyone still from school, for example. You know, I didn't, I never thought in high school that I'd found my people. And all a lot of mine came from those years as a beauty editor. You know, some of my best friends, Bronwyn McCann, for example, Zoe Foster Blake, um, you know, a lot of those women who are, are still such an important part of my life and and those were it's my tight industry. Years. I mean, when we weren't yeah. competitive with each other, we were all like tight friends. We travelled in a pack, we we partied in a pack, we mothered in a pack. So I agree with you. Yeah. It's actually everyone kind of dismisses the magazine or the publishing industry as bitching competitive, but it isn't. Yeah. It's super collegiate. Absolutely. And I don't think I realised how much that was the case until I left. And, you know, I'm in a much more corporate world now. And I realised that people aren't all like that. You know, we um, in magazines, I think everyone was so aware that one minute someone could be your colleague and the next minute they could be your boss. And also you have very defined lanes. A beauty editor is not competing with a fashion editor for the same job. So you can all be friendly. No one's going to get promoted into a completely different department. Um, So there's something that's really, you know, there's, there's enough lipstick samples to go around, for example, you know, no one's having to fight for their piece of the pie. And also, I mean, how much of an arsehole would you have to be if you can't be nice when you're living a life that's essentially, you know, you're being shipped around together to beautiful restaurants and, and given these wonderful experiences or, or you know, trips to, to meet, um, you know, skincare experts around the world or, you know, visit factories. Like There are some such incredible things that happen in that world. 
So I think you have to be, um, you know, a naturally pretty friendly person. Like it's an, it's an easy place to be nice. Um, you know, for me, those friendships really, they blossom because you're spending so much time together and you're like-minded people. So it's like the first time in my life that I'd met people who were like me, you know, where I felt really um, understood. So we're talking about, as I said, some really successful friends and relationships and, you know, um, everyone's gone their own different path. We all kind of, certainly that cohort that you spoke of started together in the beauty industry. And I guess, you know, um, we've read about Zoe's amazing success with the go-to skincare brand. And, you know, what does it feel like? First of all, I'm sure everyone wants to know, what is it like to actually be Zoe Foster Blake's BFF? And Isn't secondly, Zoe's BFF. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but also what does it feel like and what are the conversations that you're having in your inner circle as you're rising and falling and going sideways in your career, in your relationships? Um, because I think it's really nice to model what it feels like to be a group of powerful, beautiful, successful women, mothers, business women, so that we can start having those conversations with our friends. I know that I have cut out any friendship that doesn't include real talk. Like I want mm-hmm. to share all of me in a conversation. I want to share my vulnerability. I want to share my ambition. I want to share my darkest secrets and I want to share my most fanciful dream. And if I can't Mm -hmm. do that with you, we're not really growing together. And so I'd like to hear from you with, you know, this stellar sorority of best friends. Mm -hmm. Um, What are some of the things that, you know, you think you can do to really instigate that shift in, in the relationships that you have in your lives? Well, I think all those reasons that you just spoke about are the, the reasons why it makes um, new friendships as a grown-up so hard to foster because a lot of that stuff comes naturally just from time and history and knowing you. I and trust. love that I can speak to my girlfriends absolutely in absolute shorthand and they can reference something that happened. If I'm thinking of a path or a decision and then they can reference something that happened 10 years ago that maybe I've forgotten um, and it becomes, yeah, this shorthand for life and advice without necessarily having to get deep all the time because, you know, the other thing that happens as you get older and businesses grow and more children are born is that you have less and less time to foster those really worthy relationships. And so sometimes I might only communicate with, you know, my best friends via memes. We might just send each other memes for three days because we're all busy and we don't have time. But we know what that means and we know, you know, like I've got one of my very closest friends, Sheree Comerford, um, she who, who's brilliant in every way, but she's just recently moved a little bit further away than she's ever been before. And I swear to God, we can go weeks and the only communication that we have is sending each other people we don't like or are laughing at on Instagram, which sounds really bitchy. <laughs> you have a burned up relationship. <laughs> But it's literally just all, all, you know, people, something that that we love and it's literally reduced to that, but that doesn't mean the friendship is reduced. It's literally that this is our coping mechanism for now while we've both got crazy stuff going on and we're homeschooling or we're doing all of these things. This is how we're keeping that little kind of the red thread that connects people who love each other that I really believe in, you know, and it stretches and it gets knotty, but it doesn't break. 
And um, and this is how we're keeping that red thread alive for now. And then we'll go back to our normal stage of talking to each other every day on the phone or being able to see each other more often. Um, but I think that's where the history of a, of a long-term friendship, that's the glory of it because you can go through those phases. You can be as busy as you need, but it's still um, as nourishing as it's ever been. And don't you feel that when you have those old friendships um, that have stood the test of time, you almost are bonsai as to the time where you first met. So you interact mm. with each other in such a youthful, fun, you know, manner. I know that with my best friends, like it, it takes one song, you know, uh, you know, you know, mm. my best friend Olivia and Darren, and, you know, it takes one Madonna song and we could literally be in the middle of writing a business plan or talking about <laughs> something horrific. And, you know, the wiggle comes on and we're dancing on a couch and like we're, we're doing something yeah. crazy and I love that again as you said about the frame of reference the touch points that are unspoken you know and that idea I think that idea of agelessness comes into play there because you can be with those old friends and and we had this the other day we were sitting in a restaurant and I was like do we come here for your hens and we realized we were talking about something that happened 15 years ago but it feels like yesterday so in that sense you get that idea that sort of all the time and none of the time has passed. And um, and there, there is an, an agelessness to that, I think. Definitely, imagine. definitely. And, you know, you can't manufacture that. And, and new friends are wonderful, but it's really hard to manufacture that. I want to talk about your travel and your experience as an editor and a beauty editor. And as you said, the beauty editor often had the most power because it was the most lucrative part of the income for a magazine. Um, It was the most glamorous job. Fashion is different to to beauty. Um, And I want to talk about the people that you've met in your journey because there, there is an enormous privilege of meeting inspirational people and also there's a tragedy of meeting people who you were fascinated with or put on a pedestal and then you meet them and it's like, whoa, not so much. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Look, and I think, I think that's part of the reason why um, I, I never liked to, as the editor in chief, I never liked to write my own cover stories unless I was super, super convinced that the person would be great because I could never fake it enough. I could never fake that gushiness that you need in a cover story. Um, And so often those people were really disappointing in real life or you just wouldn't be able to break through and they were just less impressive or less charismatic than you imagined. And, you know, there's real truth to not meeting your your heroes, I think. I definitely Um, know that from experience and it's always devastating when they kind of break the... Absolutely, yeah. But then you have other people, you know, um, I, I tell a story in my book about a cover that we shot with Elle McPherson once and um, it was with her ex-husband, Gilles Bensimon, which would be, can you imagine the pressure of shooting with your ex-husband? She was married to him when she was in her early 20s. You know, he was already much older and much more successful and, and really played a huge role in her career going forward. And um, I can't imagine how intimidating that must have been in itself. But he wanted to shoot on a boat in Sydney out past the heads and so we were all like, oh, yeah, you know, we're Australians. We'll all be great. And he was like, well, it could get rough. And we were like, I'm not going to fake the French accent. But we were like, okay, well, we'll be fine. And we all get out there. And just one by one, everyone on my team starts vomiting and, and just relentless vomiting. <laughs> we were so seasick. And we... Um, we got, we were using the bathroom so much that eventually the skipper was just like standing in front of the toilet saying, no one's allowed to vomit in the toilet anymore. 
and poor Rachel Wayman, who's my fashion director at the time, she just grabbed him and she was like, you will not let me vomit in front of Gilles Ben Simon. And the wonderful thing about Elle in that moment was that she was also sick, but she was just such a trooper. So she would, he was the only person not vomiting. She had vomited a little bit, but she would just pose, look incredible, and then just very discreetly pop her head over the side <laughs> and come back. And that was such a mark of, you know, what a workhorse, what an incredible work ethic. Um, there was so much elegance to it despite the weird situation. Um, it was really, you know, it, it's those moments where you're like, oh, that's why you're where you are. You know, that that's how you've done this because, you know, that's the person that you are. So, so pleasantly surprised by that experience. And then in so many other cases, so underwhelmed by many others. What about um, the beauty tips and things that you've made your own? I mean, I know that I'm sure everyone asks you this, but you've been exposed to absolutely every trend, every innovation. You've had laboratory tours, I'm sure, like I have. And sometimes, you you know, you it's electric. You really are in the presence of a great mind or a, a great product and you can really feel it. What are the things that you have now added to your own kit and you are passionate about and excited about? Um, so, I mean, I still evolve my routine all the time. I do... Um, love a gentle retinol product because you know there are some stuff that just works you know that it it works and Um, I love Richard Parker so much I mean what a god how can you you not (laughs) be excited in his presence I think that you know and the other person who always really impressed me as a beauty editor and this is going back years and years was Daniel Mays who was the research and development director at Estee Lauder for a long time and he was very much like you know I remember him saying to me once, look, I don't want to have a tone. There's nothing that you need a toner for anymore, but I have to have them in there because there's a certain group of, you know, rich old women in New York who really love them. So they're going to stay in the range, but that's not where my head is at now. My head is in, and this was at the point, I think we might've even been having a meeting because it was the first time they'd used an AHA in a product. So um, we are talking a very long time ago, but, you know, he also, he, I remember him saying to me, um, you know, the most damage that you can do to your skin is is by over-cleansing. It's like everybody's over-cleansing right now and he's like, you know, and that's so damaging. And I probably took that a little too seriously, which is why I always went to bed with my makeup on. But, um, you know, I think that idea of kind of being gentle with your skin, using ingredients that work in formulations that you know are effective and packaging that you know is effective, um, I think that that you know, my, my philosophy on skincare is, is kind of pretty simple and it's also very sensorial like right for me I like a ritual I want to feel I mean yes I've got products that might sting a little and and products that don't smell that sexy because they're super clinical but actually I do like that feeling of you know inhaling a beautiful skin oil before I put it on and doing the massage and you know, really getting all the toxins moving through the lymphatic system and all of those kinds of things. So I think that part of it for me almost means more than the efficacy of a product sometimes. Do you go to a skin doctor? Do you have clinical facials? Would you consider surgery? I will always in life, in any area, consider anything. I'm I'm not silly enough to think that you should ever close a door off to anything. Um, 
Yes, look, I, I love a clinical facial. Um, I probably don't, I don't get enough time to do them. It's like, you know, if I've got time to go out and get something done, it's got to be something that is necessary for the front-facing part of my body, i.e. it's enough that I got my nails done, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm squeezing things in here and there, but, you know, that's something that I would love to do more. Um, I've been having Botox for a very long time. I'm due. You can probably tell that. God. I mean, I, I was so scared to start making appointments again once we were allowed. Did you get <laughs> social anxiety? Yeah. I was late to everything. I get my masseters done, which is a very important thing for me because I'm a crazy grinder. So, um, you know, I I basically, you know, the second that that wears off, I'm back to that grinding again and, and insane headaches and migraines. So that's been really impactful for me in terms of procedures. Have you had any of the lasers, the BBLs, any fat sculpting treatments post-pregnancy? No, but I'm super into the idea. <laughs> we were talking before about, you know, we, we've been stalking the surgeons in the US about mini facelifts. Um, you know, every time I have the conversation with a celebrity or, uh, you know, one of the modern muses, I always say, you know, would you consider surgery? Because surgery has changed so much. Mm-hmm. And like you said, you'd be mad not to consider everything unless you have an ethical problem with it. But w- what are you excited about in the science of beauty and agelessness? Is it ingestible beauty? Is it topical? Is it surgery? Is it biohacking? What What do you think is kind of the frontier of um, aging well, living well, having the best energy, the best sex of your life? We need to talk. I mean, about I think as well all of those things, but, but I think especially how we've moved into the area of supplements and our understanding of supplements and what they can do, I think, you know, has, has been a dramatic shift. And, you know, I know the jury is still sort of out on ingestibles. I still take them because to me, it makes sense. So I'm going to do it until you tell me that it doesn't work. Um, It doesn't hurt. They taste pretty good. I'm happy with it. Um, But definitely in terms of supplements and being able to tap into what is it that I'm feeling depleted in or where do I think that I can improve something? Like at the moment, you know, I'm feeling pretty good in most ways, but I'm taking lots of magnesium because like, I'm just getting old. My body's just starting to, to seize up all the time unexpectedly. Um, but I think that there are all sorts of things where, um, you know, our, our knowledge is just evolving all the time. And I, and I love that in some ways supplements have become sexy. You know, I think that's, that's great. Have you ever had um, genetic testing or do you get blood works done to determine what you need? I mean, I have had, I've had my bloods done. I had a wonderful naturopath, um, David Jivan, who is in, in Randwick in Sydney and he's really great and, and um, helped me like lose a lot of weight post. Uh, actually it was before I fell pregnant the first time. It wasn't that I wanted to lose a lot of weight. It was that I was feeling kind of a bit sluggish and not myself and I didn't have a lot of energy and and he wanted to get me back to a place of, you know, real health before I fell pregnant and he did an, an amazing job. I would love the time to see him more. Um, but I forgot what the question was. Uh, do you, have you had genetic testing? Oh, yeah. And, and, and no, I haven't, I haven't had any genetic testing. My son, my 14-year-old on his 12th birthday was desperate for 23 and me, which I thought was one of the cutest things in the world. Did he get it done? <laughs> he got it, yeah. Yeah, Lily. Like now you're in a database and you can never commit a murder. 
I know, right? They've got everything. <laughs> and it's pretty bad for your um, insurance because they've got your blueprint. But I found yeah, right. the most illuminating guideline for actually Did you making, get that one or a different yeah, one? I got 23 and Me. I did it eight years ago when they were still giving you the full breakdown. The health. They, yeah. It's annoying they that they do don't the, do the health now. Yeah, because people were jumping off cliffs and killing themselves if they were like predisposed. The informa- There was a lot of information. Whereas wow. I found it a really sober, honest, scientific mm. guideline to then take to my naturopath and to take to my hormone doctor and to take to my, you know, whoever I was seeing in allied mm. health and say, I've got a predisposition to this or I'm really strong with this, but my epigenetics and my lifestyle could potentially put me at risk. What can we do? And mm. it's, it saved me so much money. And mm. I have been able to navigate past so much bullshit in this industry yeah. because I know what my DNA code is. Yeah. So I'm a massive fan of DNA testing. Yeah, I'm. Like, it's definitely something that I'd be so interested in and maybe even not the DNA stuff, but... What's that other one where they do all your bloods and microbiome um, testing and yes, yeah, yeah, yeah all of that. Testing. Fascinating. It's it's incredible it's, what we can know about our bodies now. I know. So uh, I'm just going to wrap up my love with a little bit of experience that you've had and some of the thoughts that you've had. What do you think is the most important aspect of reimagining yourself? for the future do you think it's something that we need to consciously make space and time for and do you do you know do you have any kind of well-being practices or self-actualization things that you do or you've learned no but I think the most important part of of staying young and and staying yourself as you get older is probably just to be aware of that. Like I think a lot of the aging that happens is so subconscious so or, or even unconscious. Like we're, we're just, we let ourselves become old before we're really aware of it. And I think there's really something, you know, the most youthful people I know, it's got nothing to do with what they look like or, you know, um, how they dress or anything. It's really about their awareness and are you staying open-minded? I think that's the biggest thing. Are you open to generational shifts? Are you open to recognising that people are different? Are you open to changing the, the way we're changing, the way we think about things, um, our values as a society? You know, I think being being able to be part of or at least cognizant of all of those changing tides and shifting sands is, is probably the thing that keeps you the youngest. And I mean, for me, having teenagers is what does that. There are times when I think I'm a super evolved person, but I'll say something, you know, maybe I'll look at one of my niece's Instagram photos and freak out at what she's wearing or something. And, and you know, my 16 year old will look at me and be like, you can't think things like that, mum. And I'm like, oh yeah, you're right. Each to their own. <laughs> you know, so I think for me, that's the biggest part of it. Trying not to become a cliche of your generation or getting stuck in your ways in any in any way that's the most important part for me who inspires you who do you think does that really well um look I'm I'm not necessarily a group groupie although I think it's an excellent business but I think for me like Gwyneth is one of those people like she's just open. She's just, and I love that idea of like, maybe some of the stuff she's into is a bit cuckoo. Some of it's completely valid, but she's not closing herself off to any idea. And I think that that's, you know, I I think that's really, I mean, of course there are issues around her and 
the privilege with which she approaches things. I understand all that. But I think there's really something um, in that idea of just being like, we don't know everything. I can't know everything. I might be 45 and think I know everything sometimes, but I don't. And I think on the subject of privilege, it's still who she is. So she can only be herself. She can't pretend to be something she's not. And what you were saying earlier, I think, is is the ultimate truth is know yourself, be true to yourself, but be open because you haven't stopped. You haven't stopped at 20. You know, I, I was interviewing um, someone for the magazine and they were in a career where you really uh, stop when you hit your peak, which is in your 20s. And I thought, gosh, that's such a weird concept mm-hmm. because, you know, I spent most of my life trying to be older because I was very overqualified for my youth. And I remember mm-hmm. um, one of my mentors um, is John McGrath, the real estate expert and guru. And I worked for him when I was quite young. I was 23 when I worked for him. And he opened up the most incredible doors for me. I attended crazy meetings like with Rupert Murdoch with massive property developers and he would send me along by myself and I said to him once I said you know it's amazing you really trust me you always let me have a go at things and he said Bahar if you're good enough you're old enough so I spent Mm -hmm. all of my youth trying to pretend to be older look older and then to get the perspective of someone finishing their career in their mid-20s because of the industry that they're in and having the conundrum of having to reinvent themselves for relevance for the next 75 years mm. of their life. It's interesting. Isn't, isn't that like one of the wonderful things about the world we're living in today is that I don't think age demographics are really a thing anymore. You know, you have 50-year-olds killing it on TikTok and you've got 21-year-olds buying luxury products like it's going out of style and, and they're and, and they're just all one. And I think it's just now so much more psychographic. Are you yeah. interesting? Are you relevant? Are you, you know, are you keeping things fresh and staying on top of trends? And and you know, your ability to understand tech becomes more and more important. You know, so I think that leaves us in a world that's so much more open in so many ways where you no longer have to feel like you are redundant because you've hit 40 or 50, 60, whatever that is, you can still be anything that you want. Definitely. I'm going to wrap it up by asking you, do you still have another book in you? Because you didn't have the time or the headspace to do all the research, but there's got to be that book in you still. I feel like I, um, I've i written, a, I wrote a screenplay last year and I feel like that's maybe my my happy writing space. So, um, I mean, I feel like everyone wrote a screenplay during COVID, but I was also one of those people. Um I'm always creating. I'm always, you know, my my mind's always ticking over with things. If I could sit down, writing a book's really hard. I will just say that. I wrote a book too and it was devastating. I nearly had a nervous breakdown. We've spoken about that before. There's nothing fun in that process. Anyone who does it, when I look at, you know, like Zoe's prolific, when I look at, you know, authors who have just had a career just relentlessly putting out new books, I think, wow, you are incredible because that's hard work. I think the reason that you found it so draining and I definitely found it devastatingly draining is how much of yourself you put in it because there is nothing more permanent and cathartic and like as you said you you know you put it all out on the table as writing a, a book and so yeah it is it's it's different to anything else I've had lots of businesses I've launched lots of things I've created all sorts of media but nothing nothing was as personal as a book 
Yeah, I mean, it's also incredibly <clears throat> gratifying, I think, to, you know, you have this tangible thing in your hands that people understand and 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 that's wonderful. Um, it almost becomes a time capsule, I think, of of where you are at a certain time. I don't know how I feel about it in five or ten years, but it's great to have now. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I could speak to you for hours. There's so much um, experience and wisdom and fun. And honestly, anyone who's ever met you, one of the you know, the first thing that they always say about you is that you're beautiful, like genetically blessed. No, oh, she was really drunk. Uh, she, you're so much the worse. other thing that they always say about you is she is fun and you <laughs> are fun and you are, you know, forever young, forever young, forever in your early 20s to me. And um, it's such a pleasure to have had you on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That was an absolute ball. Well, have a great day. Ageless by Rescue is brought to you by Rescue Me Academy, Reignite Your Relationship course. Love your relationship but miss the early days? You're not alone. This course will teach you how to identify your issues, stop the fighting, find what you need to be happy, re-spark intimacy and keep the lines of communication open. Join us at rescuemeacademy.com.au to learn more about the program and to download your first free lesson. I hope you enjoyed this episode and if you did, please share and rate this episode. I'd love that. 